what Parity does is we attempt to tackle the vacancy issue um, by acquiring vacant buildings by the block, but then we mobilize uh, social capital. So we mobilize people who are willing to move onto mostly vacant blocks because they're moving onto those blocks with their with 40 of their friends, family members, congregation members, um, co-workers, and it's a, it's a collective movement. If you look at the historic map of Redline Baltimore and you overlay it with a modern day map of um, health disparities, the overlap is almost 100%. Take a look outside your window. Do you see a tree? Do you see multiple trees? Um, on many blocks where there's vacant buildings or just predominantly black or low-income neighborhoods, tree cover is oftentimes very, very low. This is just one ex example of a health disparity. Why am I doing this? It's to build black wealth. When I started to lead with that story versus the, well, all my numbers make sense, with, you know, not leading with the pro forma or leading with the investment model, but leading with the, why is this important? Um, that started to get the attention of larger philanthropic organizations. You are listening to the Health Disparities Podcast, which is a program by Movement is Life. It's being recorded live and in person at Movement is Life's annual summit. Our theme this year is bridging the health equity gap in vulnerable communities. And as always, we are convening with a wonderful community of participants, workshop leaders, and speakers. I'm Dr. Michelle Leak, a recent administrator retiree from Mayo Clinic, and I am a member of the Board of Directors for Movement is Life. According to a profile in Baltimore Magazine, Bree Jones counts herself among a generation of young black Americans who are being spurred to activism by high-profile killings of unarmed black people. These are people who demand accountability on issues involving race, violence, equality, all in the United States. For Bree Jones, a central solution is revitalizing neighborhoods without gentrification. Her organization, Parity, which is a nonprofit equitable real estate development company, is working in Baltimore to do just that. So it's my pleasure to welcome Bree Jones to our Health Disparities podcast. Thank you so much, Michelle, for having me here. This is, I think, I do like several conferences and talks per year, but I think this is by far my favorite. Oh. So really, thank you for having me. Wonderful. And our attendees loved you. We could barely get out of the room this morning. <laughs> so speaking of your presentation um, to our group today, what are some of the key messages that you shared with the audience here at the Movement is Live Summit? Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Let me try to consolidate mm -hmm. that. Um, so I shared a bit about the organization that I created, Parity, which um, was really born out of a deep understanding of the history um, 
not just of Baltimore, but really um, America and its um, intentional racist policies that um, the federal government enacted, one of which was redlining, which um, saw just the start and continuation really of a massive racial wealth disparity where there was a, a... a lack of flow of capital into black communities. So in Baltimore, that's resulted in the creation of about 15,000 vacant buildings and 23,000 vacant lots, Mm -hmm. mostly concentrated in um, East and West Baltimore, which are majority black neighborhoods. Um, And so we talked, you know, a little bit about how if you look at the historic map of redlined Baltimore and you overlay it with a modern day map of um, health disparities, the overlap is almost 100 percent. And so what Parity does is we attempt to tackle the vacancy issue um, by acquiring vacant buildings by the block. But then we mobilize uh, social capital. So we mobilize people who are willing to move onto mostly vacant blocks because they're moving onto those blocks with their, with 40 of their friends, family members, congregation members, um, co-workers, and it's a, it's a collective movement. So we, um, we currently own about 40 properties. We're bringing about 40 home buyers through the program. And we've just seen just like a burst of excitement about our work because I think a lot of people feel like this is an innovative model and um, a scalable approach to tackling the vacancy issue. Um, But a couple of key messages that I left the audience with is that, um, one, the vacancy issue in Baltimore is at the crux of many of the disparities around social determinants of health. And if we can tackle the vacancy issue, we tackle the public crime issue, we tackle the poor educational outcome issue, we tackle the environmental issue. Um, And that social capital, just mobilizing, you know, people around a shared vision and shared values, that is unexpectedly like one of the greatest movers of um, systemic barriers. Um, and that there's social capital all around us. Absolutely. And for you, one of the uh, additional key messages that I picked up on, which was just really new information for me, I'd never really thought about it that way, Uh, but in terms of the physical and mental impact on vacant properties um, and properties that um, don't have foliage or trees and the environmental impacts of that, of course, but then how that impacts individuals. So I'm wondering if you could just share a little bit of that also, because I I think people often don't make that connection that that's another piece of this vacancy problem. Mm -hmm. Yes. So thank you for bringing that up, um, because you're right, it is kind of like an invisible issue. Mm -hmm. But for the listeners out there, take a look outside your window do you see a tree? Do you see multiple trees? Um, On many blocks where there's vacant buildings or just predominantly black or low-income neighborhoods, tree cover is oftentimes very, very low, meaning that there, there just aren't trees on the block. And it has so many environmental and health ramifications. So from an environmental standpoint, trees provide shade. And we know that as we experience climate change and global global heating, um, trees are going to be really paramount to continuing to keep our neighborhoods cool 
there's an, a phenomenon called the heat island effect where research has found that um, it's on average eight degrees hotter in lower income neighborhoods that have no tree cover or very low tree cover compared to affluent communities that ha have high tree cover or high canopies, tree canopies. Um, and so this is just one ex example of a health disparity. Um, but also, I mean, trees, green space, um, flowers, they have a positive effect on our, our well-being, on our mental health, on our um, feelings. Um, and conversely, you know, you might not notice it when it's not there, but you do feel the impacts of just a drab and dreary and a, a blighted space. Um, and so research has found that um, blighted buildings increase your heart rate, increase blood pressure, increase feelings of anxiety and stress. Um, and again, on an individual by individual level, we might not be even realizing that it's happening to us, but biologically it is. And so these are some of the things that health practitioners, we have to think about how the built environment is impacting the health of people. Absolutely. I think it would be wonderful if our listeners could um, learn a little bit uh, more about um, what was your uh, motivation for getting into this work and, and about uh, your first project, perhaps, that you could elaborate on. Yeah. Um, so I'm from New York originally, and I grew up, I was born and raised in the Bronx. Um, my parents were also, um, you know, raised in the Bronx. So that is where I formed most of my formative years and then um, moved to New Rochelle, New York, which is Westchester County, just like right outside of the Bronx um, as a teenager. And um, I got started in the work because um, my neighborhood began to be gentrified. So for New York, Harlem and Brooklyn have been experiencing gentrification for probably the last two decades, but it kind of just mm -hmm. started to hit... Um, my, my area where I grew up um, in, within the last six to seven years. And that's really what led me to start Parity. I, I could see the writing on the wall. I could see the luxury rental apartments being built all over my, you know, my city. And I was able to acquire one of the last vacant buildings um, in, in my neighborhood. And I led a, a full gut renovation on that project using my own capital rolled up my sleeves and was actually doing the construction work. And um, it was a successful project there. To this day, there are three families still living in that building um, who are paying well below market rate rents um, in a you know neighborhood where rents have almost doubled over the last few years. So um, yeah, I, I wanted to continue to do the work. Um, it was extremely difficult, and I was saying, you know, if you've ever tried to renovate a kitchen or your bathroom, you know, it's the hardest thing you'll ever do. <laughs> so I definitely had to have, like, a, a little bit of a come-to-Jesus moment. Like, are you sure you want to do this, Brie? But I, I made the decision to keep going, um, but was quickly priced out of my neighborhood. So I was sharing with the audience that I purchased that first property for 200000 and just a year later houses were appraising at $800,000. And I just could not continue to do the work in New York. And that's what led me to Baltimore. Because my thesis was that you really, in order to 
once gentrification starts, it's almost impossible to stop it or reverse it. So you really have to get ahead of it and you have to work in neighborhoods that have not yet started to experience gentrification. And you really have to get widespread control of the assets or the housing stock to ensure the outcomes. And so for me, I really wanted to be in a city where there were high rates of vacancy and really no investment happening because that to me, Baltimore City has 15,000 vacants. I saw that as 15,000 opportunities to create affordable housing. What a bold vision. for, And it's just um, such an um, inspirational example for all of us and who think that we're just one person and we always think about what we can't do but not what we can do. And it's within us all. We just have to have the passion, and you're just a wonderful example of that um, to share with our audience and to share with the, the world. So very delighted again to have you here to share that example um, with us. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the, um, the the money that it takes to sort of like get started with this, right? I know for your first property in Upper State New York, that was your own money, and now moving into Baltimore with 15,000 opportunities. If you could tell us a little bit about um, what you've purchased so far to date and um, where the seed money or capital came from to be able to do that. Yeah, those, those are great questions. Um, so yeah, I, I was sharing that I was trying to raise capital and I was going to like the traditional financial like investment, uh, you know, institutions and they were just like, heck to the no. <laughs> we are not giving you money <laughs> to put into that neighborhood. I mean, they used all of the disparaging terms you could think of, money pit, you know, a hellhole, a war zone. No one wants to live there. You'll build the buildings and then they'll sit empty because no one in their right mind would choose to live in West Baltimore. Mm-hmm. And I knew that, that that those remarks were from a deficit lens mm-hmm. um, of black neighborhoods and black people. And so that, again, is another, it's one of the reasons that I led with the social capital to demonstrate that contrary to the narrative that there was interest and demand um, in these neighborhoods. Um, So once I kind of leaned more into, okay, well, what are my values? Like, what, why am I doing this? It's to build black wealth. When I started to lead with that story versus the, well, all my Numbers make sense, you know, not leading with the pro forma or leading with the investment model, but leading with the why is this important. Um, That started to get the attention of larger philanthropic organizations. So I, you know, I received um, a couple of small investments to kind of get me going. Um, one of which from Innovation Works, which is a local um, ecosystem builder that funds social enterprises. They, I. Um, invested the first $50,000, which allowed us to purchase our first property and get our first architectural drawings. Um, But it really was, we received a a massive investment from J.P. Morgan Chase for $2 million. And I I always tell this story. I was just working one day, August, at my desk at home, and I received an email with the subject that said, we'd like you to apply for $2 million. 
And I opened the email cautiously, like, am I being scammed right now by, like, a Nigerian prince? Let me just, <laughs> let me not click on any links mm-hmm. in this email. Mm-hmm. But I just verified, okay, this was actually a real email from J.P. Morgan Chase. They invited a very short group, a short list of people and organizations to apply for a $2 million grant around their Black Wealth Initiative. So I applied, received that funding, and that really opened opened the floodgates for me. I was able to hire a team. So we're now a small but mighty team of five people who are doing this work. It allowed us to acquire about 40 properties across the neighborhood, and it financed um, the construction of our first two houses. So, um, and, you know, that relationship is still ongoing. So most of our funders are corporate philanthropy, um, so J.P. Morgan Chase, Care First, Kaiser Permanente, LifeBridge Health, um, Bank of America, uh, Lowe's, BGE. I mean, we just have been really fortunate to um, partner with a lot of really great companies and corporations. Um, we receive some funding from foundations as well. And then we really have an amazing group of donors who, you know, are um who are family foundations or private givers who give anywhere between 5000 per year to 50000 per year. So, um, yeah, we're like 90% philanthropically funded, and we are a 501c3 nonprofit. I, I love that um, um, in terms of making the pitch, if you will, to a potential funding source or donor, starting with the heart. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that really is what resonates with folks. So what makes it successful if there's a, a passionate leader, smart, passionate leader mm-hmm. that will go the distance? And I love demonstrating up front that there's that social capital, that you have a waiting list yeah. of people right. that want to get in on this. So it just really turns the whole narrative around, right? Exactly. So it's just brilliant. So the, the other question that I have is, um, what has been the conversation with the um, city of Baltimore administration, for example, the Housing and Urban Development Department, for example, is I do know that they have traditionally community development block grants. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm just wondering how they are leaning in to support and help this initiative, because they are with 15,000 vacant properties in the city, they should just be salivating at the opportunity to partner with Parity because you are a proven success. That's a great question. Um, I will say I think the city, the housing department, and um, City Hall have been incredibly supportive of our work. Um, I think they are just eager to support all organizations that are trying to do good for the city. Um, The challenge is that, you know, Baltimore, from a budgetary perspective, does not have the budget to tackle the size of the need. And so what I have personally been advocating for is that the city work on forming partnerships and relationships. Um, So public-private partnerships that allow us to collectively tap into, you know, larger sources of capital. Um, Because at the size of the challenge, I mean, this is, it's anywhere from a $2.5 billion challenge to a $7 billion challenge. And so 
we there's a group of advocates on the ground who have been talking about things all the way from um, bonds, like municipal bonds, to TIFs, TIFs, which are tax increment financing models, um, and the creation of a land bank, Mm -hmm. which is a quasi-government entity that is solely focused on acquiring um, all vacant buildings, so getting clean and clear title to vacant buildings. And this is a tool that um, most cities that struggle with vacancy have, like Detroit, Um, Part of the reason why Detroit is turning around is because it has a really successful land bank Mm -hmm. that's acquired the properties, they bundle them for sale, and then they also help finance um, individuals or, um, you know, companies that are working to renovate, you know, those buildings or lots. So so I just summarized that to say the city, um, there's a lot of really good people in city government. They're doing the best they can with limited resources. And in order to... Uh, tackle this, we really have to be working in partnership. Absolutely, and I appreciate those examples of um, Detroit, for example, with the land bank, because I I think that um, to see other cities that have been successful with that uh, brings hope to other cities that are similarly strapped for financing and maybe could learn from the experience of of Detroit and other places Mm -hmm. that have moved in that direction. So we also learned this morning, Bree, that you have a, um, I don't want to say spinoff, but an adjacent mm-hmm. um, a company uh, a focus that is uh, t- totally in alignment with your main development uh, focus with vacant housing. So I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that in terms of, of, of saving homes that families are at risk for losing their homes because of back taxes. Yes. Yeah, so when I started Parity, um, I knew that we our mission would be development without displacement. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, it's incredibly challenging just to acquire and renovate an abandoned building and put a homeowner in it. That in and of itself is <laughs> an enormous mm-hmm. task. But then we also have to think about legacy residents who live interspersed amongst the vacant buildings mm-hmm. and ensuring that as the neighborhood heals and revitalizes that they don't get pushed out. Mm -hmm. That is also a huge task. So um, I helped to co-found, we call our sister company, which is the SOS Fund. Um, Mm -hmm. SOS stands for Stop Oppressive Seizures. Um, But it's like a play on words because we feel like this is an emergency. And we deal a lot with um, just legacy residents who for different reasons or are at risk of losing their homes. Um, whether it's heirs property rights, which we know is just like a pervasive issue in black communities where oftentimes we inherit homes from our deceased grandparents, but we're not actually on the deed. Mm -hmm. And it just leads to a loss of intergenerational wealth through home ownership or assets. Um, We also are working to disrupt and dismantle the tax sale system So in Baltimore, every year we have a tax sale where if you're behind on your taxes up to $750, that tax debt is sold to private investors, oftentimes um, hedge funds or private equity funds, where they can get 12 to 18% interest on that debt, which is like, where can you find an 18% interest return on any investment vehicle? Nowhere. Nowhere. (laughs) But where taxing that, you know, against the most vulnerable um, homeowners in in Baltimore. And um, 
so we what we do is we work with homeowners who are behind on their taxes and we raised a small pool of money and we bail them out of tax debt. So we've raised um, about $150,000 so far and we bailed out about 85 um, mostly elder homeowners. Um, and it's just, I mean, these are elders that own their homes free and clear and often t- like when you don't actually have a mortgage, you don't have them escrowing your property taxes for you each month. And oftentimes the elders get caught off guard when they get that big lump sum bill at the end of the year. So not only do we help bail them out, but we also get them on a plan so that they don't fall back into back taxes again. Um, but even more important, we're really looking at systems change. So for the last three years, we've encouraged the mayor to remove all owner-occupied homes from tax sale in its entirety, and we're trying to end the practice altogether. Wow. So um, really That's proud of... Incredible. Thank you. Really proud of that work. And my two co-founders now lead that full-time, and we all work out of the same office, and we work hand-in-hand, and just really proud of what they're doing. Uh, I, I just love that... Um, way of expanding your mission, right? You say it's your sister company, but that's seeing a need and seeing how you can fulfill that need, close that gap, um, have people stay in their homes, and certainly that's a central part of the mission of your organization. I wonder if we could turn now in the remaining time that we have uh, to talk a little bit about um, the selection of homeowners and how you prepare homeowners to be successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting. Um, we don't quite select our home buyers. It's like they find us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's been entirely word of mouth. It's just been people who tell two of their friends who tell two of their friends about this and then ultimately people want to live next to you know their friends and family and it's just grown organically so we're working with about 40 people but we have a wait list of over 700 people who have reached out to buy a parity home 700 700. so I think that just goes to show that again contrary to you know popular narrative Mm -hmm. It's not that Baltimore, people don't want to live in Baltimore. It's that the presence of vacants um, and blight and dilapidation make it really hard for people to stay in the city or come to the city. Um, And when you remove that barrier, you'll have healthy, thriving communities. So um, for parity, the only requirements are that you go through our curriculum. And it's not technically a requirement, but I think people self-filter if they're not values aligned because we really do lead with our values Mm -hmm. in that we are intersectional, meaning that we think about different systems of oppression and how they show up differently for us and how um, they can be layered. And um, we really try not to perpetuate, you know, systems of oppression in our work. So that's one. And an example of that is um, while we primarily support black households with ownership and staying in their homes, we have to recognize that even within our blackness, some of us have access to resources that others don't. So it's not just for college educated, you know, black folks, and it's not just for people who have not had interactions with the justice system. You know, we really try to think about um, all of us and how we show up differently. Um, But in terms of the curriculum, it's eight weeks long. We go through, again, a lot of our value systems, but also 
here's how, you know, to get credit ready to qualify for a mortgage. Here's what the mortgage process is going to be like. Here's how you interview your lenders to determine which lender is the right one for you. What's in um, a variable interest rate versus a fixed interest rate versus an ARM, um, which is an adjustable rate mortgage. So we we really are creating like highly educated, well-informed consumers in, in, the, in the sense of being able to navigate the mortgage process. And then um, once we kind of get through that component of the curriculum, we also teach them how to maintain their homes, um, what it means to... Um, flush your pipes for the winter so that your pipes don't burst, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, we we're hoping that we're creating folks who are not only financially ready, but can then steward that asset and pass it on to, you know, their next generations, as well as being civically engaged um, community members who are, you know, active in the fabric of the community and making it better. Perfectly describing the community wealth building as well, and I was struck by um, what you stated during the during the presentation as well in terms of over the life of the mortgage at the end of it, the wealth that's created for families. So maybe you could comment on that a little bit more. Yeah. So um, well, on day one. Um, our first two home buyers who have since closed on their home and who are living there, on day one, they had over $100,000 in equity. We sold the homes for 250000 but they appraised at 350000 So that's an immediate beginning of a, of a reversal around the racial wealth disparity. And because we did um, the historic tax credit for these homes, they will um, be saving $80,000 of property taxes over 10 years. So that I'm really proud of. Like if I retire tomorrow, yes. <laughs> I could hang my hat on that. Yeah, um, but that chart that I showed uh, was basically a, a graph of 30, over 30 years, which is the average life mm -hmm. of a mortgage. Um, if our home buyers continue to pay their mortgage down, in theory, after 30 years, they will have accumulated about $400,000 of household wealth. And that's assuming very modest appreciation over 30 years. So earlier in the presentation as well, I shared a graph that shows that the disparity in median household wealth between white and black households, for white households, the median wealth is $171,000. For black families, it's $17,000. So there's a 10x gap today. Um, and so that's why um, that that wealth component, wealth generation through homeownership is so important. Also, for the average American, two-thirds of your wealth is in your home. Um, and so we cannot um, understate how, um, or we can't overstate how um, transformational homeownership is for the wealth profile of black Americans. Absolutely. In addition to that, um, how key it is to even have a shot at uh, being healthy mm -hmm. and having um, healthy outcomes and living your best life, you right. know, <laughs> without safe, affordable housing you don't even have a chance uh, to realize those other things that are really our rights. They are human rights, right? So I know that we are coming to um, the end of another episode of the Health Disparities Podcast, and I think that parity in the work that you're doing is the quintessential example of what 
our theme of our summit is this year, which is bridging the health equity gap in vulnerable communities. So I think we've really tapped into a wonderful, exemplary um, uh, model of what you're doing and your leadership. It's just remarkable. And we so appreciate your vision, um, your commitment, and the results that you are achieving. And please know that you have a friend in Movement is Life, and we will be following you, and we will be making connections with uh, the, the family of Movement is Life that we have uh, because there's so much interest in this topic. And there are very few, to be honest, um, examples of what you're doing and, and have done with Parity. And so we're so appreciative. Thank so thank you very much for, for joining us. Thank you. Michelle, and can I also say, yes. I just want to say thank you so much for sharing your platform. Yes. Um, like you said earlier, sometimes as individuals, we ask ourselves what we can do and we think it has to be a grand gesture, but sometimes it's just opening the door for others and giving them yeah. a stage to speak. So thank you so much. Absolutely. It's our pleasure. Totally. And thanks to all of our listeners for joining us on another um, episode of America's Leading Health Equity Podcast. So until next time, be safe and travel well. Thank you.